Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. So we come back to the book of Genesis, and we are at Genesis 13 right now. And because it's been a few weeks, let me just remind you just of where we've come up to. God created a world that was good and he blessed his creation and he called it very good. And yet man, the crown of his creation, rebelled against him, sinned against him, and sin and death came into this world and this world was cursed as a result. But God's plan was always to glorify himself. In fact, his plan was always to glorify himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. And so he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to start afresh with this world, but he perseveres. And by the time we come to Genesis 12, there's a big shift. Even as the world is lost in sin and nations are divided and they have no hope. And what we see in Genesis 12 is God turns his attention to one man named Abram, who is an idol worshiper, breeds life into him, and he responds by faith. And he promises Abram certain things. And fundamentally, uh, you could think of the promises in three, uh, three sections, which is land, seed, and blessing. And we know that this promise, or these promises that were given to Abram, was a promise to ultimately restore the world to himself from the curse of sin and death, and where this world would once again be filled with his glory. And we know know, the, the blessing of seed, yes, it's the nation of Israel, but through the nation of Israel ultimately will come the the ultimate offspring, the ultimate seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ who would bring an end to the sin-cursed world. And he will restore this world. And even the blessing in an ultimate sense is the blessing of restoration back to the Lord. Now with regards to the land, the blessing of land, the promise of land, That's what we see God tests Abram with. Now, a few weeks ago, as we looked at chapter 12, we saw how when there was a severe famine in the land of Canaan, Abram became fearful. He took things into his own hands and doubted God as a result of this severe famine. That caused him to take his entire household, including his wife and and Lot, to Egypt. And we saw how, by taking things into his own hands, he, he asked his wife to lie so that he could protect his own skin. But ultimately, his wife's life was in danger, where he's taken into the harem of Pharaoh. And there's nothing he can do. But God graciously intervenes protects his wife, protects Abram and his household, and he comes back to the land and he is restored. And what we saw the last time we looked at Genesis 12 is that Abram would have gotten a taste of what God is intending, that God's plan is to restore a people to himself. That even a person like Abram, who had so gone away from the Lord and had stuffed up big time, by God's grace, is brought back to him. He's experienced that just personally in his own life. And while Abram is the person who's meant to be a blessing to other people, 
when he was in Egypt because of his lie and all the things that came about as a result, he lost his testimony to the Lord in Egypt. And yet God has not given up on him because God's plan is to work through this imperfect man, do a work in him and grow him in his knowledge of who God is and grow him in his faith and keep him steady for the glory of God. Abram failed miserably in his first test regarding the land. He doesn't stay in the land, but he goes away from the land when there's a problem of famine. Now as we come to Genesis 13, here's a second test. Another test with regards to God's promise of the land. There's going to be another problem in the land. And the question is, is Abram this time also going to take things into his own hands because there's a problem now in the land? Is he going to trust in himself and doubt God again? And then really, is he going to still stay in the land and trust God or is he going to go away from the Lord? Is he going to go away from the land? I've titled this morning's sermon as Conflict in the Land. And we're going to look at this section in, under three scenes. We'll look first at the problem, then we'll look at the solution, and then finally the reassurance. And from this, I hope that, again, we will begin to see this life of faith. Of Abram. And really, in this, Abram passes the test with flying colors. And there's much that we can learn from Abram's example, and, and even through the negative example of Lot, and, uh, and even more than that, something of the plan and the character of God. So, firstly, the, the problem. Now, before we get to verse 5, or verse 4 rather, just look at verse 2, Genesis 12, uh, pardon me, Genesis 13 and verse 2. Now it says there that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. How did Abram get so rich? Remember, he, he already started amassing wealth when he left Haran. And then he comes to the land of Canaan, and even though he was unfaithful to the Lord in Egypt, yet God was still faithful to him. Because God had promised Abram that God would bless him, and that included material wealth. And so even as he's left Egypt, he's amassed so much of wealth. In fact, the word there, where it says Abram was very rich, the word that's used there in the original is kavod. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament to speak of the glory of God. It speaks of weightiness or heaviness. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis 12 to speak about the fact that there was a severe famine in the land. That the famine was so heavy. Now by contrast, as Abram's coming back to the land, as he's left Egypt, Abram's heavy with riches. I mean, he's, he's got so much of livestock, uh, and we looked at this even, where Pharaoh has given so many exotic animals as well, like camels and female donkeys, and, and we saw the fact that in those days, to have such animals would be like having a Rolls Royce or a Bentley. So he's a very rich man. He's got all these livestock and exotic animals, and not just one or two, he's got several. 
And then on top of that, it says that he's got a lot of silver and gold, and he's got a lot of servants and people to, to look after his herds and flocks. So Abram here, he's an extremely rich man. Anyone who would look at Abram at this time would say, wow, that is a very, very rich man. And we know that ultimately all these riches that Abram amassed was simply because of God. Because remember, Abram was a nobody. And God is in the process of making this nobody a somebody. And part of that making him great involved material blessing. Now I just want to stop here for a moment and say this. It is not sinful for a believer to be rich per se, to have stuff, if, if they've gotten stuff by the right means. Why? Because ultimately even riches come from the Lord. 2 Samuel 2, 7 says, It is the Lord who makes the poor and the rich. So while it's not wrong to be rich, there's often troubles that are associated when we have a lot of riches. Scripture often warns about the dangers of having much wealth. 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because when one loves money, they, they start coveting things, steal things from people. Not give the workers that is due because they, they so want their money. Sometimes it leads to rivalry and fights and further competition. Sometimes it'll lead to treating others poorly. It can lead to not being generous as we ought to be. And then beyond that, when someone has a lot of riches, one can also become proud and, and self-sufficient. So much so that the person can say, oh, I don't need God now. Or maybe it's not explicitly saying, I don't need God now. That person simply forgets God. God is completely out of the picture in their life. Why? Because now the rich person thinks, hey, I've, I've made all these riches on my own. I don't need help from God. I don't need to lean on God. I can survive this world with all the riches that I have. Listen to the warning that God gives to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, verses 12 to 14. This is God speaking to the Israelites. It says, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." And then verse 17 of Deuteronomy 8 again, just a few verses down. God says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. And it's precisely because of this danger of forgetting God and this danger of self-sufficiency and reliance on riches and self that Jesus said in the New Testament that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean that rich men can't enter heaven, but it's a lot more difficult for someone who is very rich to enter heaven because of all these issues. So yes, there are great dangers involved with regards to having riches. But Proverbs 38 and 9 it provides a great prayer with regards to riches. And I love this prayer. 
as to what we should be thinking with regards to riches. Proverbs 38 and 9. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is just needful for me. Why this prayer? Lest I be full, I have so much of stuff and, uh, you know, just so full that I would deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the prayer is saying, Lord, just give me what is sufficient. Don't give me too much that I would forget you and deny you. Or don't give me so little that I would, you know, dishonor you in the way that I live my life and even be tempted to steal from others. So yes, there are great dangers involved with the accumulation of wealth, but it is not sinful per se for a believer to be rich. And here's Abram, who is an example of a believer who is very rich. And what we see here is that Abram, even though he's very rich, his heart is not fixed on his riches. His heart is not fixed on his wealth, but his heart is fixed on the Lord. Now, Abram's, with all this wealth, is on his way back, and after he's been publicly shamed and and he's repentant. He comes back to the Lord with all these riches we saw. He builds an altar and he worships the Lord because he sees his folly. He sees his sinfulness. He sees the goodness of God and he worships God. That's where we ended last week. Now verse 5 further adds, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So what we see here is that Lot is also reasonably rich. Now we might ask the question, so how did Lot get rich? Because the promise was specifically given only to Abram, that God would bless Abram. So how did Lot get rich? Well, because of his association with Abram. Because remember, God had promised Abram that he would be a channel of blessing to all those around. So if people attach themselves to Abram, that that blessing would flow to them as well. And so by Lot tagging along with Abram, he also became the recipient of the blessing of God. And so he's also become rich. So on the one side, we see Abram's very rich. And then Lot, by association with Abram, has also become wealthy. But now there's a problem that arises because of all this wealth and riches. Look at verses 5 through 7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So here's the problem. You have all the flocks and the herds and the herdsmen Uh, of Abram on one side, and then you have all the flocks and herds and the herdsmen of Lot on the other side. And both parties are looking for green pastures. Both parties are looking for water supply to feed all this livestock. And because they have so much of this livestock, they're constantly clashing. You know, one group would be saying, oh, we got here first. So we need to feed all our animals in this green pastures. And then the other group will say, oh, we got to this well first. So we need to feed our animals first and give water to our animals first. You better wait. So these two groups are clashing. 
And there's strife and tension between these two groups. And the last part of verse 7 says, At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. You know, the wonderful thing about the Bible is every detail, it's pertinent. You know, there's nothing in the Bible where, oh, it's just some filler information or something. There's a specific reason why God puts any detail in the Bible. So you say, well, why this seemingly incidental detail? I think there are a few reasons for it. Well, first of all, the Canaanites and, and the Perizzites really are just a subsect of the Canaanites. They, they are in the land of Canaan, meaning the land is already occupied. So it's not an empty land. Abram, Abram's group and Lot's group, not only are they large in number and they have all this livestock, they're sharing it with the rest of the people of the land. So that's going to put further pressure and further difficulty. And furthermore, if there is strife within a wealthy family like this, you know, now this family would, would become easy prey for the Canaanites to come and attack this family, maybe even steal some of their wealth. But even more than perhaps physical attack or their wealth being stolen by the Canaanites, I think something greater was also at stake. And that is their public witness to the Lord. Remember Abram, when he first came into the land of Canaan, what did he do? He built an altar right next to this big place of idolatry. And he worships God in the midst of people who are idol worshippers. And what a testimony that would have been to the Lord. And then in the next scene, as we saw in Genesis 12, was when he moved to Egypt, where he took things into his own hands. He did not trust in God and his promises. He took things into his own hands and all the troubles came about because he lied and he was deceptive. And what happened then? He lost his testimony in Egypt. You remember Pharaoh, a pagan worshiper. He rebukes Abram publicly in front of his, all of his family and his servants and everyone, you know, all the peoples of the land, saying, why have you done this? You've been so deceptive. And because of all this, we are suffering. A pagan king rebuking a believer saying, you are so unrighteous. Abram at that point wasn't being a blessing to others. In fact, he was being a curse in that land. So Abram had lost his testimony in Egypt. Now there's strife between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And the Canaanites are watching. These idol worshippers are watching. And their public witness is at stake. What is Abram and Lot going to do? These people who claim to believe in the living God. I mean, are they just going to fight it out and whoever comes on top stays and the other sort of goes? I mean, isn't that what normally happens in the unbelieving world? What's going to happen to these two parties? You know, strife is inevitable in this world. Why? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. And not only that, we ourselves still have sin in us. And so strife is inevitable, but the Bible makes it clear that as believers, we must strive to live in unity and in love. 
Listen to the, if you remember Jesus in John 13, verse 35, he said that all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't address sin issues if there are sin issues amongst us or if somebody is severely mistreated. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that fundamentally, the way that we treat each other as believers leaves a big impression on the unbelieving world about the God that we believe in and what he has done. So we must be very mindful of the way that we treat each other, even in the midst of difficulty, so that we maintain our public testimony to the Lord before an unbelieving world. Because that's what's ultimately at stake. So that's what Abram's facing now this father of faith. There's now conflict in the land. Is he going to trust God or is he going to take things into his own hands? Is he going to lose his testimony like he did in Egypt? Or is he going to maintain his testimony for the unbelieving world that is watching? What is he going to do? This leads us to the next scene, and that is the solution. Now, Abram offers a solution. You know, sometimes when there's strife between brothers, they come together, try and work through things But if there's things that principally cannot be agreed on, for the sake of peace, for the sake of maintaining the testimony to the Lord, sometimes the best thing is to amicably part ways. And that's what we see Abram doing here. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. I want you to just think in terms of what Abram's doing here. Abram's the patriarch of the family. And Lot is his younger nephew who's just tagged along with him. And then on top of that, Abram's the more richer guy, the the more powerful guy than Lot. And Abram's the one to whom God gave all the promises, including the promise of the land, not Lot. So Abram had every reason to demand his rights and even tell Lot, say, Lot, you go there. That's where I want you to be. He had every right to do that. But he doesn't do that. What we see here is a very different Abram to the Abram that we saw in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, Abram was just simply interested in himself and taking care of himself. But through his failure in Egypt, Abram's now a humbled man. And he even shows a deepened faith and a trust in God. See, Abram appeals to his nephew saying, let's not have any strife between us. In fact, in the original, there's even a, a, please, let's not have strife between the two of us. 
He's urging, he's, he's pleading with his nephew. And he says, we're kinsmen, we're brothers. And what Abram's being here, he's, he's being a peacemaker. And similar to what Romans 12, 8 says that, you know, as far as it is possible for you, be at peace with everyone. That's what Abram's doing here. And so he tells Lot, look, here's all the land before you. And you pick where you want to go. And he gives Lot the first choice of the land. He says, you, you pick any part of the land. You pick first. Very different Abram, isn't it? He's not thinking of himself now. He's being selfless here. And he says, so if you pick that land and you go left, then I'll go right. Because I don't want there to be strife like this, for we are kinsmen, for we are brothers. But then the question is, but what kind of land will remain for Abram after Lot chooses? I mean, Abram's the guy with more stuff and more livestock and more people. But Abram's not concerned about that because Abram now is trusting God with that and he's seeking to honor the Lord. A very different Abram from whom we saw in Egypt. Now ideally, Lot should have deferred to his patriarch, his, his uncle or his, his authority figure really. And he should have said, oh no, Abram, uh, you know, you're the patriarch, you're the head of the household. You just give me whatever part of the land you want. Or perhaps he could say, you know, all this wealth and stuff, yeah, let's not have strife because of this. Let's just work out things and I want to stay with you. But Lot doesn't respond like that. He responds very selfishly. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Now, as Abram and Lot are standing in the hill country of Canaan, they can see below the Jordan Valley, which is really the, the outskirts of the land of Canaan, and some beyond as well. And this area of the Jordan Valley, it looks green as they've looked all around. This particular valley looks very green and luscious and a lot of water supply compared to the rest of the land of Canaan. Visually, in fact, the Jordan Valley in some sense resembled the Garden of Eden. You know how the Garden Eden was so beautiful and so luscious. And in some sense, it was even similar to Egypt in the sense that it was just full of prosperity. So Abram looks at that valley and says, that part of the land, I'll take that. You know, Lot in some sense is acting like Abram when he was in Egypt. Lot is simply thinking of himself. He's not thinking of the promise of the land that God gave to Abram. He's willing to go to the outskirts of the land and even beyond the river Jordan and that whole entire valley. Because he's just going by what he sees on the outside. He's not considering the promises of God's word regarding the land. Now here's the thing. The Jordan Valley 
That's the region by the Dead Sea. And if you know anything about the Dead Sea and that region around the Dead Sea, it's an area where nothing grows. And yet here it is described much like a luscious place like Egypt and the Garden of Eden. And you have to ask, what happened to this place? What happened to this place? God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin and the rebellion in that place. That's why now it's such a lifeless place. And yet, it was not like that before. And so it's pointing to the fact that even though right now to the human eye, this place looks like paradise, this choice that Lot has made is not a good choice. And then further, the text adds, Lot journeyed east. And we've seen this now a few times in Genesis This journeying eastward is the direction of ruin. It's the direction of moving away from God and his blessing. Now verse 12 and 13. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. See, what you see here is, with regards to Abram, he passes the test with regards to the land this time. There's a problem in the land, and despite the difficulties in the land, Abram doesn't leave the land. Even though there's a place down there in the valley that looks like paradise, Abram chooses to remain in the promised land. It shows that Abram's grown in his faith. He's trusting God's promise with regards to the land, despite the fact that this land has only brought him problems and that there are people still here in the land. Lot, on the other hand, settles among the cities of the Jordan Valley. And it says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And Sodom is described as a place of great sinners, meaning so much of wickedness happened in that place. But this is where Lot has decided to settle, just so close to Sodom. Now, Lot is not intentionally you know, having this evil intent and saying, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go to the, mo- the sin city of the world at this time. That's not what he's thinking. No, this is just purely a rational and a logical decision on Lot's part. He just simply went by what he saw on the outside. But he wasn't acting by faith. He wasn't thinking about the Lord. He wasn't considering anything spiritually. In fact, we see in the next chapter, in Genesis 14, that not only is he close, but by Genesis 14, he's actually living in Sodom. When you get to Genesis 19, you see uh, Lot sitting at the gates of Sodom, meaning he's now one of the elders, a prominent uh, person in the land of Sodom. See, as he lived close to this sin city, the culture of that place just influenced him bit by bit. And in time, he was right smack in the middle of that place. You know, sometimes believers can, even in this day and age, can fall into this trap. Regarding their choice of work, or place to stay, or education, or person to marry, or, or you, you know, lots of things like that. You know, someone might find a, a, a great place to live or a, or a great job or some great university or, or this great guy or great girl. But they're not thinking spiritually. They're not thinking for, you know, especially those who are just thinking university and place or job or whatever. 
all their thinking is worldly accomplishments. They're not thinking, is there a good church in that area? That's almost like an addendum or a last minute thing. Oh, perhaps I'll think of that. That'll, that'll sort of work it out. It's almost an afterthought, but there is so much of spiritual danger in making choices like that. And that's what we see even what will happen to Lot. And I would say that's why, you know, even as elders, we continue to encourage people, those are members of this church, to pick a place to live where there are other members of the church living in that area. Don't live so far away that even during the week you can't have uh, fellowship and, uh, you know, because it affects the relationship. It affects having um, good, close communion with other believers. And invariably, that will have an impact negatively in your spiritual life. So it is important as we make decisions in life that we're not simply going by the physical or the external, but we're carefully thinking through the spiritual implications as well. Is this decision good for me and my family, spiritually speaking? I don't care what's on the outside, what it looks like. Or will this decision cause me to go away from the Lord? Will this decision cause my family to go away from the Lord? We would be wise to take into consideration the spiritual impact it will have on us and our families while we make such decisions. Lot was simply thinking physically what he saw with his eyes. He wasn't thinking spiritually, and it would lead to a lot of disaster in his life and the life of his family. One theologian commenting on this verse says, quote, given Lot's choice, that's his choice to live close to now Sodom. The surprise is not that his daughters are lost in unbelief or that his wife is, or let me put it in the future tense, the surprise is not that his daughters will be lost in unbelief or that his wife will be utterly ruined. The surprise really is that he is saved at all. It shows the power of God's grace persevering even in a foolish man like Lot, end quote. See, if we simply read just a few things about Lot in Genesis, you would never think that Lot was a believer. And yet in the New Testament, Lot is called as righteous Lot. Or in other words, he's a believer. So Lot is self-focused, not trusting the Lord and his word, and he's simply living by sight. Abram, on the other hand, is now selfless, a humble man, very different from before. He's trusting the Lord, living by faith in God's promises, and remains in the land. Now this wouldn't have been easy for Abram. I mean, staying in the land has only caused him problems. First, there was you know in fact, it's the very reason because he's staying in the land that Lot and him have to part ways. I mean, he dearly loved Lot. He, he was his nephew that he had taken under his wing. And we'll see in the next chapter next week, when Lot was in trouble, Abram goes and rescues him. We see in Genesis 19, Abram intercedes on Lot's behalf when God threatens, when God threatens judgment in Sodom. So it would have been difficult for Abram to part ways with Lot and remain in the land. And then 
further, there are still questions unanswered about the future. How is he going to survive with all these people in the land where green pastures and water supply are not readily available and there's all these other people, the Canaanites and the parasites? And how is he going to get the land ultimately for himself when all these people are in the land? So while Abram is living by faith and remaining in the land, it was still a difficult choice for him to stay in the land. And now God comes to Abram to encourage him and reassure him. And here we come to our last scene, the reassurance. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I love that. Because oftentimes, you know, this is what happens to us as believers as well. We're going through some deep trial and we've had to make difficult choices fully trusting the Lord. And the difficulty of that situation perhaps does not go away. But then God's word and promises from his word come flooding into our lives and our hearts and it comforts us and reassures us. God has a way of doing that often. So Abram's alone. A lot has separated from him. And God's word comes to him. And God tells him to lift up his eyes and look to the north and the south and the east and the west. And God says, all this land will be given to you and your descendants. Yes, God has already told him about the promise of the land. But he makes it even more clear. It's all this land, not just this portion of the land or most of the land. It's going to be all this land of Canaan is for you and your offspring. And furthermore, you will own this forever. So God is saying to Abram that even though you don't own this land right now, this land essentially will be the everlasting possession of Israel. Now you might be thinking, you know, what's the big deal of the land of Canaan? I mean, I get the, the, the seed promise as it relates to redemption because the seed promise is, okay, the nation of Israel, then finally the ultimate seed, that's Jesus Christ, he'll restore the world. And the blessing, yes, it's ultimately about restoring the world from the curse and removing sin and death and God's blessing coming over all the earth. But what about the land? Like, how does the land relate to this plan of redemption? I want you to think, you know, right when we started the first couple of chapters in Genesis 2, remember the Garden of Eden? We saw that the Garden of Eden was paradise. It was a place where there was a river flowing and this river then divided into four rivers which essentially then watered the rest of the world. Eden was the center place from which God's blessing would flow to the rest of the world. Now think about the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is in the middle of the nations. And really, it will, and, and therefore the land of Canaan, and specifically Jerusalem, will function like Eden, where God's blessing will flow from Jerusalem to the rest of the nations once the Israelites are in the land. And this is what we read in the prophets, where various nations are coming to Jerusalem the, the, the central place of God's blessing, and they're being blessed. It's functioning like Eden, where this land then will become a blessing to the rest of the world. 
So that's how the land is connected to the plan of redemption. Now God also gives some more details with regards to his descendants. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, I will make your offspring as dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now God had already previously promised Abram, I will make you a great nation. Now there's further elaboration here that Abram's descendants or seed or offspring would be so numerous that they would be like the dust of the earth that he wouldn't be able to count them. Now we know from the rest of the Bible that this is obviously not just talking about ethnic Israel. Yes, they will become a great nation, but Abram's descendants will also include everyone who has put their trust in Jesus. That's what Galatians 3.7 and 3.29 says. So it will include all believers, including you and I who have put their trust in Jesus. Now, obviously, Abram doesn't know all of this because God hasn't revealed this as yet. But at this point, here's what God is doing. He's calling Abram and saying, look around the land. Walk the full length and breadth of the land. So he's visually seeing this land this way. And then he's saying, pick up the dust from the ground and just drop it. And he's saying, believe by faith that all this land of Canaan will permanently belong to you and your descendants. And your descendants will be countless like the dust of the ground. (laughs) I mean, you can imagine as God has told Abram this, what uh, comfort this would have been. He would have been so reassured because what he sees right now is anything but that. It doesn't even have children. It doesn't own the land. Nothing. So Abram would have been overwhelmed in a good way by the reassurance that is brought to him by the promises of God. And so how does Abram respond to this? Verse 18. It says, So Abram moved his tent and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which is at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He settles at Hebron, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. I love that. Dwelling place of Abram, a temporary place, a tent. And yet he builds an altar to the Lord, something of a more permanent structure. And what you see again here is Abram's focus is on the Lord and making much of the Lord, and he's not tied to the things of this world. And when you have an altar, that means there's going to be a sacrifice on that altar. Again, as we have seen previously, what is Abram doing here? He's recognizing he's a sinner, he doesn't deserve these promises. He recognizes God's goodness toward him. He recognizes God's faithfulness. And just just really, even in the nature of God, how good God is, aside from just the blessings in itself. And so he offers a sacrifice to the Lord and worships the Lord. Abram passes the test this time regarding the land as he trusts God with his word and exalts the name of the Lord in the land of promise filled with Canaanites. Abram is an example of someone who walks by faith and not by sight. Lot, on the other hand, is an example of the opposite. If there's anyone here this morning that is not a Christian, I would ask you to consider this. Lot lived by sight, simply by what he saw with his eyes. And as we progress in this narrative, we see that it only leads to disaster. Let me ask you, friend, 
Are you living by sight, simply by what you see on the outside? Perhaps everything in your life right now seems to be good on the outside and and you don't see a need for God. Let me tell you, friend, things are not all right with you, even though on the outside it might seem like it's okay. You stand as a guilty sinner before God, a God who is holy and just. And you know that deep down inside because the Bible says every human being knows that they're a sinner deep down inside. Whether you decide to push that truth aside or not, that is a fundamental reality and you know that to be true. The Bible says that you're an enemy of God and God is opposed to you. See, this is not a small issue, friend. It's not like a small tiff that you have with a friend. A a mild altercation. We're talking about consuming fire, the God of all the universe, who is holy and just and right. And you, a puny creature that stands sinful, guilty before him, and you are God's enemy. He is opposed to you because of your sin. But let me tell you, friend, this God who is holy and just and right is also merciful and gracious, and he's provided a way by which you can be made right with God. See, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world as a man so that Jesus would die in the place of sinners like you and me on the cross as punishment for sin that people like you and me should have incurred. And then Jesus rose on the third day, proving that he indeed is the Son of God and that he is able to provide a way of forgiveness and bring peace between you and God and for all who will put their trust in Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus, please come and talk to me after the service. Perhaps somebody who's sitting next to you that you know is a Christian, but don't go home today without hearing about how you can be made right with God. Now as we end, let me just speak to the believers here. What we're seeing here in the life of Abram is the journey of faith. We saw the last time in Genesis 12, Abram messed up big time. He didn't trust God, trusted himself, took things into his own hands, and things went haywire. It was a disaster, and he shamed the name of the Lord. In this scene, Abram does well. He trusts God despite what he sees around him, and he honors the Lord. See, one of the things you need to recognize is this. In both scenarios, when Abram sinned and went away from the Lord, and when Abram trusted the Lord, where does the scene end? With Abram coming back to the Lord and worshiping the Lord. Why? See, because ultimately this walk of faith Yes, it is important to have faith in God, but you know, one of the things that we need to understand is it's not ultimately about our faithfulness, but it's about God's faithfulness. So friend, brother, sister, maybe you've had a terrible week this week and you've messed up big time and you don't feel like you should come before the Lord and worship him. Let me tell you, friend, if you will turn away from your sin, God will receive you with open arms. Because he is the God who loves to restore sinners. 
Because ultimately, it's about his faithfulness and seeing his power and his goodness and his love and his mercy. Perhaps, brother, sister, you've had a great week. You know, things have been going well. Then let me encourage you not to pat yourself on the back. Because again, it's not about your faithfulness but it's about the faithfulness of God and seeing more and more about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God. That is what faith ultimately is, having a bigger picture of God and realizing who God is and therefore throwing ourselves onto him and saying, God, I want you and you alone despite what this world has to offer. You are my ultimate, you are my everything and you are my delight. That is what the journey of faith is, and we will see more of that as we continue in the story of Abram. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are, and even for the fact that you give us life, and you give us the ability to, even though we are weak and frail and we mess up uh, so many times and other times we do well, we are still prone to so focus on ourselves. Father, would you teach us to not focus on ourselves, but to focus on you and your righteousness and your holiness and your goodness and your mercy and your love and your grace. Give us a bigger picture of who you are, even as we know you more and more from your word and even experientially. And even as we know you more and more, Help us to finally say, to you alone be all the glory, for you are my ultimate good and my delight. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.